Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin Paneskis. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Peter. How are you Hi, doing? Hi, everyone. I'm very well. You? Very good. Very good. Great to be here. Great to have you here, Kevin. And for those of you who've been listening for a few weeks, you might have realised that I disappeared for a bit because Mr. Moore, Rob Moore himself, came in and wrestled the microphone off me and Harry, the tech guy, and did his own podcast. But I'm back. Some of you have been asking me, have I been sacked? Well, no, I haven't been sacked because I'm here back in the interviewer's chair. And great to have Kevin in, because Kevin, what's your speciality? It's service accommodation, Peter. It is indeed, isn't it? It is. But that's a relatively recent thing, I'm guessing. But before we get too far ahead, Kevin, how did you start in property? When did you start in property? Well, when did I start? 20, uh, I'm giving it all away now, 26 years ago, um, age 20 is, is when I started. 20 years old in property? Yes. Now, I wish I had started when I was 20 years <laughs> old. How did that happen? Well, it's, um, it's, uh, it's my dad's fault, I've got to be honest, Peter. Uh, he, a big scary Scotsman, he, he said, Kevin, invest in property. And uh, <laughs> I did exactly what, what I was told. When you meet my dad, you know that when he tells you to do something, you do it. So, uh, yeah, that's why I started investing in property. So why, why was your dad so keen on property? Well, it's, yeah. It's, and, and I have to say, by the way, we blame our parents for a lot of stuff, don't we? <laughs> yeah. That's actually quite a good thing to blame your parents for. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, no, it's a, it's a very good question, Peter. Um, Dad had been in the army, and after he left the army, he got into pubs and clubs, and he found his, his way to Swansea, um, which was his last sort of club that he operated. And he got into property from there and started buying properties mainly from, from um, auctions. But at the time, the, the property values were going up significantly. He sort of benefited significantly from the uplift in, in property at the time. And so he, he was getting really good results from property, and that's why he told me to also do it. So this was, you know, early 90s. Mm. Uh, but to be honest, at the time, the market was on its way down. So, you know, I didn't get the same sort of results that he did when I first got into property, but he had had good experience from it and so said that I should do too. So he's a big Scotsman, slightly scary, yeah. buying up properties in Wales. That's correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you as a 20-year-old are looking at Dad, Dad saying, go in, buy property. <laughs> yeah, I can't do it. <laughs> Not as, as good as an accent, no. 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 Bit of work. But I wanted to give it a go. <laughs> How do you do that, though, when you're 20? Another good question, because I was, uh, my dad had been in the army and I I pretty much always tried to follow in his footsteps. So I joined the army at 16. And uh, I suppose it's a story of of spinning plates, uh, which we all do, don't we, at times, is spin plates. And when he told me, I've been in the army four years, and when he told me I should start investing in property, I thought, yeah, Absolutely, I, I'll start. And luckily, the you know the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so the we'd been brought up in, in terraced in a city, and actually in Plymouth, we were we were brought up myself and my brothers and sisters. 
And so the sort of properties that I thought I should buy as buy-to-lets actually did work um, in that sense. So fortunately, we hadn't been brought up in three-bed semis in the suburbs because that just wouldn't have worked um, as well. So I got away with it purely coincidentally because, yes, my dad told me to invest in property, but the, the issue that I later started to experience is he hadn't taught me how. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I sort of was in the army and I was buying um, buy-to-lets and then later on a, a HMO before being trained. So I'm guessing that you did, were doing it the old-fashioned way. You'd save up your deposit from your wages yeah, and, and wait a few years and then save up for another one? Correct, yeah. It took me 20 years to get to six, um, and one, one being HMO, which I now know is a HMO, but I didn't at the time. Um, I just thought it would be a good idea to uh, to have a three-storey large house on the hoe in Plymouth and put lots of uh, tenants in there by the room. Um, fortunately, I now know <laughs> how to operate HMOs correctly, but fortunately it had been a, a guest house previously, so it did have fire doors and it did have fire alarm system, etc. So I wasn't breaking too many rules uh, before I learned how to do it right. And you still own that property? I do, I do, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, brilliant. So that 20-year period, you were in the army? Yes. Yeah, that, that must have made it quite difficult anyway. Presumably you were based overseas at times. I mean, I know a bit of your backstory. You were in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh-huh. It can't be very easy investing remotely when you, when you try and do something like that. It definitely isn't. I mean, it's a case of spinning lots and lots of plates, especially if you don't have the correct systems um, and leverage in place that obviously we, we teach here at Progressive um, for trained property investors. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I did a couple of tours of Af- Afghanistan without any correct systems leverage in place. And I was literally that guy who you would get 20 minutes to call your, your family um, on a satellite phone in some austere parts of the, uh, the province. And uh, Helman province, which is a very nice name, <laughs> who thought that name up? And I would spend that 20 minutes sometimes trying to get plumbers out to deal with leaky taps in, mm. in my HMO, in my buy to And so clearly it caused a few issues with my family. And so, yeah, the, it, it became actually, it's one of the reasons why I really love um, teaching people how to invest in property along with other good trainers like yourself, is that property investing is definitely worth doing, but only worth doing well. And uh, a lot of people say, say to me, you know, property investment training is expensive. Um, well, I've got the other side to that coin is um, if you think property investing education is expensive, try ignorance because ultimately what I, I had done is create a situation where I was propping up my portfolio using my job income, which because I was having tenant problems and voids and tradesmen letting me down, etc., I was actually losing money some months from my portfolio. And so I needed my job income to prop that portfolio up. So effectively, what I had done is created a situation where I was trapped in a job where, you know, people talk about um, exchanging time for money or exchanging life for money. And I was at times risking my life for money. And I trapped myself in that because, yes, my dad had taught me, told me to invest in property, but he hadn't taught me how. Mm. That was the problem. Mm. Going off at a slight tangent, it just occurs to me, it's almost like a surreal thing, isn't it? That you must have been amongst all this mayhem going on and trauma and tragedy, and yet you're worrying about ringing the plumber. Exactly. It's, it's a bit weird, isn't it? 
Well, it must give you a completely different perspective on life. It certainly does, Peter, because uh, looking back on it, I actually understand now how stressful life was then, juggling and spinning plates with a property portfolio that wasn't uh, performing too well and, and trying to keep family happy and trying to keep tenants happy and trying to, to fight the Taliban at the, the same mm. time. And um, I suppose, you know, to, to make life even more complicated, when I was um, 22, I, I also got custody of my daughter. Um, I uh, applied for custody because um, she, you know, it was my opinion that she wasn't being well looked after by her mother. And, and in the end, the social workers um, supported my case. And so with the help of my, my mum and um, boarding school, and uh, a couple of relationships along the way, I was able to to bring Sean up. But the again, the spinning plate. So private boarding school was extremely expensive. So that also trapped me in my job because that was what was sucking my resources out as well. And and so yes, I I I was spinning so many plates and it was so stressful. But I only actually understand how stressful now that that stress is removed from me. Mm. Because in the meantime, I was, I was just, if you pardon the, the, the pun, soldiering on. Mm. Gosh. So how did you escape? How did you get out of the army? Well, I, Caroline, my, my other half, um, she was <laughs> very similar to an awful lot of people at Progressive, uh, invited to come to a free event. And uh, I sat there with arms folded thinking, what is this? Is it going to be some sort of happy, clappy cult thing? And looking at, um, you know, people like Rob Moore up on the stage with a stripy shirt, uh, thinking, right, um, I, I'm not uh, sure I'm convinced this is for me. But actually, listening to the, the different trainers and, and especially listening to Rob, I realised that I'd been investing in property for 20 years, but I didn't know a thing about property. And I could actually be doing a lot better and that property is is actually the vehicle that would be able to release me from my job and so I, I made a decision at that point this was October um, 2010 and I decided I was going to leave the army and at the time I was a, a regimental sergeant major so that's the the guy the shouty guy with the stick you know mm. and um, I actually decided I was going to hand my notice in and leave and one, once I handed my notice in I was going to have to serve one year and after that year I was going to be out and at the time they were shrinking the army numbers and so I knew that I had to make it work by implementing what I was taught so I signed up for, for property training even though I didn't seem to have that much money to spare at the time I signed up for some property training and then on the 11th of November 2010 Remembrance Day mm. I handed in my notice and by implementing what I was taught I was then able to buy properties. I sorted out my existing portfolio and actually doubled in the next year the portfolio that had previously taken me 20 years to build but a good good investment properties and I was then able to leave the army on 11 11 11 without the need to get a job. That's amazing to be able to actually do that while you're still in the army must have taken some organising and systemising, I'm guessing, on your part. Or were you just able to take leave and go off and find properties and then go back? No, it's, it's actually a brilliant question, Peter, because clearly I was at the busiest I've ever been in a full-time job with a, as a regimental sergeant major. I had a whole regiment dispersed around the, the country and the world. 
um, to, to look after and to manage. And so I had to implement the systems and the strategies that are taught to me by people who are where I wanted to be. People like Rob Moore mm. currently and Mark Homer, over 700 properties. You, the only way you can do that is by implementing proper systems. And one of the, Rob's phrases that I absolutely love is that anyone can generate passive income if they follow the system. And so that's exactly what I had to do. I had to leverage. I had to follow the systems. And that's what I hadn't been doing previously is leveraging correctly and trying to do everything myself. And that was where I got it so, so badly wrong. So I actually found that I didn't need a huge amount of time by, by following um, the trainings. I didn't need a huge amount of time in order to implement the strategies. Right. And was it the same strategy that you'd used before? Did you adopt a new strategy? Oh, wow. Um, I had to learn how to use other people's money. I had to learn how to source properly property differently as opposed to just um, estate agents going direct to vendor. One of the things that I did was um, put an advert in the, the South Wales Evening Post, uh, which said, sell your property fast, call Kevin for a free valuation and a guaranteed offer. And just from that advert that cost me about £700 a year, I've bought in excess of 15 properties, mm. all money out properties, mm. um, using other people's money that ultimately, with the buy, refurbish, refinance model that I was taught, enabled me to recycle my, my deposits. And so just from that one thing that I, would, that I, that I learnt enabled me to create a portfolio of property. Right. Well, you've mentioned using other people's money a couple of times and the fact you had to learn to use other people's money. So where were you finding other people's money? How did you get it? For anybody who's listening to this thinking, well, how do you actually do that? Well, what I realised and what I was taught is that the easiest way to, to raise cash for property investing is find a really good deal. And so I, I became, it became known with my friends and family that I was able to help them make an awful lot more money by investing their property, their money in property, help them make more money than they were making in the bank. And it actually surprised me how many of my friends and family came out of the woodwork that I would never have guessed I had money. And I suppose that the biggest shock to me on this was that on one occasion I bought a, um, a seven-bedroom HMO in Oxfordshire. And I, I took it over on a rent-to-rent -rent and I put a lease option in place in order to buy the property later on once I'd refurbished it. But I needed to buy it for 185000 and I was buying it for cash before I was then able to go and put, put a commercial loan on it. And I actually still needed £105,000 worth of cash to, to buy it. And I spoke to a friend of mine and said, I need uh, another £105,000. And he said, oh, I'll speak to my friend. And in the end, his, his friend phoned me up and he was in Hong Kong, his friend. And, and so I talked to him about this HMO deal. And he said, so you need 105 grand. I said, yeah, he's, uh, how are we going to do it? And I did it on a loan agreement, not secure borrowing. And so I, I filled out the loan agreement form. I, I um, scanned it and sent it to him. He sent it, uh, he signed it, sent it back. And then apparently this is how the conversation went. Just before sending me the £105,000, he phoned up my friend and said, your mate Kev, he is all right, isn't he? And my friend said, yeah, he's, he's fine. 
He said, okay, fine. And he, then he pressed enter. Mm. And Wire transferred me £105,000. Mm. I've still never met him. I've had more money from him since, but I've still never met him. What that taught me is that people will invest with people that they trust. They don't necessarily need security either. And even bizarrely, vicarious trust via a friend of a friend still worked. And if you'd have said to me a few years earlier that whilst in a trench in Afghanistan that someone was going to lend me £105,000 unsecured without ever, ever even meeting me, I would have said you were barking mad. But mm. I now know how, how it works. And the key is to find the property deal first. Yeah, yeah. And then not be shy to talk about it. 100%, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know this from Masterclass. I also have the privilege of training on Masterclass. And when we tell the story of JVs, how to find a JV, and how people will appear out of the woodwork, as you put it, it happens all the time. But until you experience it, it's one of those things which you just can't believe. Absolutely. Once you've experienced it, you realise that the world's full of potential. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. Because I imagine you've gone on to borrow a lot more since and buy a lot more properties since. Yes, absolutely. Um... I, to be honest, I've lost count. I don't know if you're the same, Peter, of how much JV finance I've raised. Um, I always pay it back. And so I've never got a too too much JV finance um, at any particular time. So I've probably got about £150,000 at the moment. But uh, yes, um, gone on to... I was. It's in excess of, of 40-plus uh, properties now. Brilliant. In the portfolio. Brilliant. Done but, an awful lot of buying and selling as well, so so there's quite a bit of that. So so currently held um, over forty. So what, what were your main strategies? What are your main strategies? Buy to let, HMO, flips. Yes, exactly that. Um, and so in that order, actually, Peter. Obviously, as well, not obviously, but as most people do, buy to lets, and then I sort of accidentally moved into HMO, and um, then flipping properties with the advert especially people would phone me up and invite me to make them an offer on their property. And one of the, the things I always say to property, uh, to people is that you just make your offers. And I, I do sort of over, oversimplify, I suppose, but it simple works for me. I buy the properties where the answer to my offer is yes. Mm. And I don't buy the ones where the answer to my offer is no. And so people would phone me up and I'd uh, why lots of different types of properties in lots of different places I would be invited to make them an offer on. And the ones that didn't work for buy to let, I would flip those mm -hmm. and keep the ones that did work for buy to let. Um, and so that's ultimately why I got into flipping of, of property. But I would just use the same buy, refurbish, refinance type model or buy, refurbish, and then just sell on type model on mm. those. Mm. Which has obviously worked really well. But more recently, you've adopted the service accommodation strategy. I certainly in have. A, in a big way. I certainly have. Absolutely. So what was your thinking for doing that then? Why did you change your strategy? Well, there's for an awful lot of investors out there like myself, I had been um, buying in my own name. And so with the advent of Section 24, that's, that's going to start affecting my, my income. Right. Just for anybody who's listening, Section 24, George Osborne, the Chancellor, a couple of years ago, decided that they're going to restrict the amount of mortgage interest we could offset against our rents when calculating our income tax. And also um, charging you on, on turnover, uh, taxing you on turnover, not profit. Which, Effectively, yeah. Which, to be honest, I didn't think is very fair at all. But <laughs> ultimately, as I know, 
progressive uh, uh, teaching people correctly, if you're going to go off and, and invest in buy-to-let and HMO now, then there's certain ways to, to mitigate against that. For instance, buying in a limited company where you can offset your mortgage interest. So all good stuff. But the, an awful lot of investors out there, for, through no fault of their own, have properties in their, their own name, and they're going to start being affected by this. And, I, and I'm the same with my buy-to-let and HMO portfolio. And so I learned about service accommodation a few years ago, and especially as Section 24 kicks in, service accommodation became an even better strategy for me because Section 24 does not affect your income from service accommodation. Mm. And I also discovered capital allowances. And so if I, if I move my existing buy-to-lets and HMOs into service accommodation, I, be, I then become eligible for the capital allowances on that portfolio, and, and they can run into the hundreds of thousands um, across a portfolio. And so a scenario is that if, let's say, for instance, you've got capital allowance on a property of, of 20,000, and you might expect that if, if the purchase price was around 100,000 on it, you then become eligible for about 20,000 pounds worth of capital allowances once it's used as serviced accommodation, but only once it's used as serviced accommodation. You can then earn 20,000 pounds from that property tax-free. Mm. So it makes it a big, big game changer for me. Not only do I not get taxed and affected by Section 24, I can also offset my income against the capital allowances against the portfolio. Wow. So that obviously makes it amazingly attractive. And just for anybody who's listening who's not sure what a capital allowance is, it's effectively a tax allowance that you can have against plant and machinery, and fixtures and fittings and bits and pieces in the property. Mm-hmm. But it only applies to commercial property, I think I'm right in saying. And serviced accommodation. Yeah. Yeah. Which for tax purposes is a, is a quasi-commercial type use, Correct. I guess. So very attractive. Obviously, very good reasons why you'd want to do that. Certainly is. And then what the perfect storm, if you like, is Section 24 in that all the untrained property investors out there or the people that actually were trained, but they were buying in their own personal name. For those people, the, the rent to service accommodation model works very, very well, because if you set up this rent, I mean, a lot of people call it rent to rent. I prefer to call it rent to SA mm. because rent to SA, the SA side means there's no tenant. So I, I prefer the distinction. So if you do a rent to SA with existing landlords, not only if you set it up correctly, not only can they avoid Section 24, but they could also claim capital allowances on the on their property. And so a lot of people say to me, oh, service accommodation sounds fantastic, Kevin. How am I going to get my service accommodation units? Well, actually, I say to them, with, especially with Section 24, it's not how are you going to get them, it's how many do you want? Because as soon as you start telling people the benefits of service accommodation, the fact that you're going to keep their property in, in show home condition, guarantee their income, that they avoid Section 24 and they get to claim capital allowances against their income, that is all the incentive you need to be getting rent to SAs. Yeah. Because on that basis, who wouldn't rent you their property? Absolutely. Yeah. But presumably, you're not just doing rent to rent, you're buying as well. I do. And you already had buy to lets. Have you converted those into service accommodation? You yes. are at the currently. Con- convert- as soon as tenants move out, I'm not evicting any tenants. They're the mm. ones that are doing nothing wrong, um, that can stay for as long as they uh, are good tenants. 
uh, once tenants move out, if the property works for service accommodation, I will convert it into service accommodation. You, and you'd be surprised, actually, or you may, might not, Peter, but many of the listeners will be surprised at what type of properties still work very well for service accommodation. I'm talking normal, bog-standard terraced housing in an inner city. Hmm. Uh, for those people that know the sort of Bronx versus Manhattan model, we're talking just outside of the Bronx, so just outside of a rough part of town. Um, and those properties work very, very well as service accommodation because they're not seasonal. They're not holiday let. They are very attractive for contractors ah. because it provides an alternative to hotels and guest houses and it's all year round demand. Ah, I was going to ask you, what sort of guests do you get? I already like, I love the distinction you've made with tenants. Yes. Guests as opposed to tenants are obviously easier to manage, I guess, because they're only there for a short time. Correct. Um, and... It's not their principal prime residence. So that's the distinction between service accommodation and uh, a, you know, a house with a tenant. A HMO, for instance, it's their principal prime residence. Whereas if you convert a HMO into a service accommodation unit, it's no longer a HMO because it's no one's principal prime residence and therefore you, you're not bound by the same HMO regulations. Mm. So an example, Peter, you mentioned about buying property. I recently bought a, uh, two properties on one title and three-storey properties, which I let out as whole house um, to guests, whole house serviced accommodation. And we've actually had the, the local Swansea HMO officer in. And because it's no one's principal prime residence, I do not have to um, have a HMO licence. I do not have to do fire alarm or fire doors. It's just C3 use category is the correct use category for it. Mm. So I, I've sort of future-proofed it in terms of doing the wiring, etc., so that I would be able to implement a fire alarm system if regulations change in the future. But as things stand, it's C3 is the correct use class, even though it's a three-storey house and one of them is a five-bedroomed house. Right. So for anybody who's listening to this who's thinking, well, I've got some buy-to-lets and they're not doing that well, what are the practical steps? What do we need to think about if we're going to convert our buy-to-lets to service accommodation? Well, as, as with anything, another great question, Peter. You, you must understand the demand for service accommodation. So if you were going to do buy-to-let, you would use specific deal analyzer um, in order to assess demand for buy-to-let. And the same works for HMO. You would, you would assess the demand differently, whereas the best part of town... Um, and where is the most demand for HMO? And so you use a totally different model for serviced accommodation. And so here, here at Progressive, um, we obviously we run service accommodation training. And on that, that training, I will show people the specific deal analyzer to use in order to assess where is the best part of their town and city that service accommodation works best. Mm. Assuming it looks good. How, how do you sort out things like the finance and the insurance and all the other bits and pieces which you might have to tweak to make it work? Is that relatively straightforward? It is, yeah. So we have a bespoke uh, broker that specialises in service accommodation um, to get the right um, finance in place for um, purchase, etc., or for refinancing an existing property into an appropriate service, uh, product for service accommodation. And your other question, Peter was remind me um so it was on the finance and insurance and insurance yeah well reminded insurance <laughs> um yes absolutely so buy to let insurance um does not is not suitable 
um, you need to make sure that you've got the correct insurance in place. And so we, we advocate operating your service accommodation units using a, a limited company. Um, and so the very reason for that is got limited liability um, protection. So you operate um, your service accommodation units with that. And with your limited company, you need limited liability insurance and professional indemnity insurance. So the specific SA insurance broker will arrange that for you. And then also specific short stay let um, insurance for each property in turn, as opposed to buy to let insurance is, is, is key. Okay. And service accommodation just seems to be booming at the moment. It seems to be in a, a massive opportunity. It certainly is, and and as as I spoke about earlier, that there's a perfect storm for it, and and mm. it's probably section twenty four, yes, and the capital allowances that that's one of the reasons for that. But it, but nowadays life is so much easier, isn't it, than when we first started in property, because you can probably run all this probably on your on your phone, can't you? Again, absolutely, smartphones are fantastic because I can virtually run my business from a smartphone, and the the. I love the fact that people book our service accommodation units on their smartphones. They're, they might decide that they need to stay in a particular town or city an extra day. They go on their smartphone, they go on to booking.com, Airbnb, as well as hotels, they find our service accommodation units and they press a button and they've booked and paid. It's, it's as straightforward as that. And, and what I also love is when someone books, you get a nice ka on your smartphone <laughs> and a vibration. So, you know, what's not to like, Peter? It's, a, it's a, definitely a win-win situation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, I'm really interested about the idea of using little terraced houses. Do you know, because I don't do serviced accommodation and maybe I should, the idea had never occurred to me. Because in my mind, serviced accommodation is all about people probably wanting to go walking in the Lake District or whatever. What is a typical guest is there a typical guest? Is there a typical type of property there or isn't, location? There isn't. It's literally anywhere from a, you know, you can actually find serviced accommodation uh, teepee, uh, wigwam. Really? Um, igloo. Yes, it's, it's absolutely any type of property. But ultimately, right through from bog standard terrace all the way to high-end um, waterside fancy uh, boutique type apartment, anything, all, anything and everything is, can be serviced accommodation. But what I'm loving about it, and to, and to sort of answer your specific um, comment on some of your properties, is we are actually earning more money from our bog standard terraced houses than we are from our fancy waterside apartments mm. because of the all year round demand that we're getting and the longer bookings that trades and um, the, the tradesmen are, are making because they might have a, a six month contract and guess what, they'd rather stay in a house than a hotel or a guest house for, the, for that period of time. And so because what we will do when we get a long booking like that is just a weekly clean, just a one, a, you know, change the, the uh, towels and the bedding, a, a little white round, and there's just no voids and, and full occupancy, which, which creates an awful lot more income. Mm. It sounds very attractive. If I wanted to get into it, and it sounds like I probably should, <laughs> <laughs> how, would I, how would I do that then? I mean, you talked about rent to rent, which would obviously be a way forward. Yes. Or rent to SA, as you put it. Yeah. How else could I get into it? And how much is it going to cost me? <laughs> well, I think Rob, Rob Moore is, is uh, running offers all the time. And so li literally today, I've actually just run a, uh, a discovery day. Um, when I go out and um, 
and do uh, PPN talks. I do uh, make people pay to come on my discovery days. Um, so that's that's the uh, the fee. And again, the, the fee changes. And the cheapest I've ever allowed people to come on my discovery days is, is 29.99 plus the VAT. But sometimes Rob um, does get, uh, he does run promotions. And so I, I suppose if you if you keep abreast of the progressive community, then you might see the odd promotion where you, you could potentially if you're quick, attend a discovery day on service accommodation for free. But uh... Well, I will keep an eye out for those. But in actual terms of what, what you're going to teach us and tell us then, what different strategies are there for acquiring properties for SA at the moment? Oh, wow. Yeah, there's, there's, there's loads. Um, obviously, there's converting your existing buy-to-let and yep. existing property. There's purchasing property to operate as service accommodation. You can do now. Would that just stop you there? Would that be a different? Would it be different from a purchase of a buy to let? It would in terms of um, you, you might purchase in a different part of town than buy to let. So, for instance, the the five bedroom house that I just mentioned, I wouldn't have chosen that for for a buy to let or HMO. Um, it wouldn't have cash flowed very well at all as buy to let, and it wouldn't have had the demand for the typical type of tenants that would want to live in a HMO because it's away from the city centre. And so for for buying serviced accommodation, you might choose a different different part of town, so a different deal analyzer. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, and so lease option is is another op, another alternative. So I've actually got a tenant that's just informed me that he is moving out of one of my lease option properties where I've got the option to buy at a point of time in the future. And so I'm going to start using that as serviced accommodation too. Mm. And so that's that's lease option. There is, um, oh, you caught me on the hop trying to think of the different strategies. Ah, another really good one is guest houses, B&Bs. They're already commercial property. They're already C1 use class you don't have to apply for change of use at all in order to take on those to use as serviced accommodation so one of the guys that i've just um taught he's he's one of the guys that's been on our training he's in the isle of sky and he's his parents have got some guest houses in the isle of sky and by converting those into service accommodation he's maximized the income from them because quite often with guest houses if you take them over the owner's accommodation can be brought into service accommodation use. The dining room can be brought into service accommodation use. An awful lot of these guest houses and B&Bs out there are not advertising on all the different online portals to maximise their bookings. And so he's trebled the income from those guest houses by starting to operate them with service accommodation. But he's also saved his parents £70,000 in tax by, by introducing or getting the capital allowances from them. Gosh. And so, yes, no need to change you. So it's a really big opportunity for people to go out there. There's plenty of tired guest house and B&B owners out there. And you can, you can just take over the lease, do a lease surrender on those. And so it's another no money down strategy, if you like. That sounds really, really amazing. And I love the way that you're tying different strategies together. Lease options, service accommodation, rent to rent. It all just becomes a, a way of... I don't know, pa- packaging them all together, just being a little bit creative. And anybody can do this, really. There's a literally a strategy for anyone because if, you, if money is an issue, if you don't have deposits or you can't get a mortgage, you can do rent to SA, where you can literally 
be taking bookings on your rent to SA property before you've even given the first month's rent or deposit mm. because you can have it live on the portals after the point at which you have signed the contract to take over the property. So we've had a £3,500 booking on a property that we didn't hadn't even paid any um, deposit and um, uh, first month's rent on. Literally took the keys on the Friday and we invited our guest in on the Sunday and we already had £3,500 in the bank. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got commercial conversion into serviced accommodation. And so the capital allowance are enormous on commercial conversion into serviced accommodation. So as long as you don't trade the property on, if you hold the property and use it as serviced accommodation, then you can claim capital allowances on it. And there's an awful lot of developers out there that do not aren't aware that you can do this. Mm. And so you armed with the information that, that we will give you here at Progressive on service accommodation, you can go and speak to developers and, and do rent to SA with developers as well. Mm. Or you can learn how to do service accommodation yourself and, and hold the asset yourself and use it as service accommodation ongoing. And the really exciting thing about service accommodation as well as a, as a strategy is you can get commercial valuations on your property too. So not only bricks and mortar, once it starts being used as service accommodation, it can be valued on a multiple of income too, which as you know, having been a commercial surveyor, Peter, that, that can be quite significant uplift in the property's value. Indeed, and actually perhaps more pertinently as somebody who owns HMOs with commercial mortgages on, yeah, absolutely, because they're valued on the income and not the bricks and mortar, you would probably be able to get most or all of your money back out of the deal. If you've put any money in at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And then some. We, we get cash back all the time, which we yeah. like. Uh, yes. As well as the tax breaks. As well as the As tax well as breaks. having guests instead of tenants. Absolutely. Well, I have to say I'm convinced. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering why I haven't done it. There we are. <laughs> I'm wondering too, Peter. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I will. Maybe I will. So for anybody who's listening to this, who's interested in knowing more, you've, you've just talked about discovery days. Yes. What's the best way of getting in touch with yourself or the office or getting themselves booked on? How yeah, phone, phone, phone progressive, phone progressive. That's that's the leverage of this. They they will book you on um, to discovery days. Uh, they do fill up um, very very fast, and so yeah, I've phone up progressive, the, the normal number, and um, they will get you booked on to the the very next one that's available. Brilliant. And if anybody wants to contact you on Facebook, for example, is that okay? They could find me. I, I think I might be on my five thousand friends, Peter, as as you yeah. do. But um, my my Facebook page is The Property Soldier. Oh, okay. And so people can find me if they just search Property Soldier. You'll see a picture of me um, as a, my previous life as a soldier uh, and my current life as a property investor. And um, you can just like my page and we, I can, um, we can communicate uh, via that if, if I am maxed out on my 5,000 Facebook friends. Yes. Right. Brilliant. Well, Kevin, it's been great having you in today. My pleasure. And for anybody who's listening to this who's thinking, yeah, this sounds good, it is good. It <laughs> almost sounds too good to be true, but it is true. So if you're thinking about it, don't think about it any longer. Find out more about serviced accommodation. That's a note for myself, by the way. I'm sitting here quite seriously listening to Kevin thinking, why haven't I done it? And I probably should. So there we go. I've been Peter, Peter Jones. My Facebook uh, page is The Property Teacher. You've got the property soldier. I've got the property teacher. I have liked your page as well, Peter. Thank you. Well, I have <laughs> have to you come liked mine? I will come and like it a bit later. <laughs> show me yours and I'll show you mine. <laughs> as soon as we stop recording. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a date. <laughs> Excellent. And if anybody out there wants to learn a little bit more about me, then come to my website, 
www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk. And don't forget, if you're listening the other week, there's a free report there for you as well, which you can download all about capital values and what drives house prices. In the meantime, until next time, here's to successful property investing. <laughs>